0: Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May.
1: Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Professor Alexandra Chihotska, an academic who leads the Political Psychology Lab at the University of Kent in Canterbury and former Vice President of the International Society of Political Psychology. Welcome, Alexandra. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm extremely happy to have you here. So just to get started then, perhaps you could tell me what does a political psychologist actually do? So as a political psychologist, we're basically trying
0: to understand the world of politics from a psychological perspective. So essentially, we're trying to understand why people endorse certain political ideologies. Why would they vote for one party or another? Why would they support different policies? Why would they become even involved in politics or become disengaged? A psychological perspective. So trying to understand their psychological needs, motivations, personality profiles, sometimes even the biological basis of political behavior. So essentially, we're trying to explain political behavior, political phenomena, political movements uh, using psychology. So political psychology is a discipline that is the border of psychology, political science, but also can be inspired from other disciplines such as philosophy, sociology, law, etc. So it's a really fascinating field of inquiry, because we get to basically observe the real life, see what's happening on in politics, and there's a lot to be excited and inspired and worried about right now. And we try to make sense of it from the perspective
1: of, of a psychologist. It's fascinating work, definitely. And we will get into a few of the things you measure as a political psychologist as well. But first, I want to understand a little bit about your background. A lot of your work seems to revolve around narcissism. So what drew you to that line of work? So
0: essentially, I started being interested in narcissism by trying to figure out whether people can be narcissistic about the different groups they belong to. Growing up in Poland, I was really fascinated by the way we as Polish people, especially the kind of post-communist time, view our national identity. And of course, there's a lot of variation within countries and between countries when it comes to this. But together with my collaborators, we were always fascinated by these ideas that people can see that their nation, for instance, is really highly appreciated. We observed that some people tend to view their nation is exceptional and extraordinary, but that others simply do not appreciate it enough. And this uh, is similar to how individual narcissists think about themselves, so that they are great, but if others do not appreciate their greatness, it's only because they try to undermine them on purpose or they basically do not see the real potential in them. And in the history of political psychology, researchers, such as Orrin Fromm, have been writing of about collective narcissism, so these sort of unappreciated ideas of national greatness. And they were using them to explain things like the uh, rise of fascism in Nazi Germany and trying to use them as a sort of one of the potential factors explaining the Holocaust and the sort of atrocities of World War II. So we revived this concept and brought it back to contemporary social political psychology and tried to find modern ways to measure it. And this also meant that I really tried to understand individual narcissism and whether there can be parallels between how individuals can be narcissistic about themselves versus narcissistic about the groups that they belong to. In a sort of weird turn of events, I became interested also in individual narcissism because I tried to understand narcissism of groups and narcissism in politics. So now my research tries to understand both how people's individual feelings about themselves, be it narcissistic or not, and people's sentiments about the groups they belong to, how they map onto different political preferences, behaviors, all the factors I mentioned in the introduction.
1: And so it goes from this individual narcissism then of I am the greatest, obviously, to, oh, my tennis club is the greatest, and also my school is the greatest, and also my country is the greatest. And those latter three are a form of collective narcissism.
0: Yeah, that's what we would say. So they would be forms of collective narcissism. Although I would say that it's still something that we're still trying to understand is whether the fact that someone is narcissistic about themselves Mm -hmm. means that they're necessarily narcissistic about all the groups that they belong to. Or maybe some groups become this sort of special focus of their attention, and then they don't need to kind of... Look for a recognition of the greatness of the other group. So, this is something how this maps across different groups within the same sort of individual. we're still trying to understand. Although, both us and people in other labs and their teams have looked at collective narcissism in all sorts of groups. So, yeah, you mentioned tennis clubs and There have been studies in organizations, gender, ethnicity. Nation and nationality is typically most often studied in this context, especially in the political context, because I think it's something that's pretty salient when it comes to understanding political phenomena. But as I said, it can be really attributed or measured in all sorts of groups. I know there's some researchers doing this in sports, like you mentioned tennis clubs, and they've done sort of collective narcissism in sports teams as well. And quite surprisingly, the sort of processes that are associated with collective narcissism and the sort of outcomes adding to these behavior seem to be similar across the board. So regardless whether we look at someone's workplace or their ethnic group, there's
1: similar processes can be observed. That's so interesting. And you mentioned already gender and ethnicity as potential sources of or perhaps potential targets of collective narcissism. And so does that mean then that collective narcissism feeds into these greater social conflicts that we can see around us in different forms in different countries, whether it's gender or race or political party or what have you. Is there a role that's played there? It certainly can be responsible for some of the
0: things we're observing. We see that just like narcissists tend to be extremely sensitive to any criticisms or threats or basically any signs of lack of recognition for them. Similarly, those who are high in collective narcissism tend to be really sensitive to any signs that their group might be criticized, undermined, undervalued, or threatened in any sort of broad way. And this doesn't even have to be real. It's enough that they Mm -hmm. see something as an insult, for example. So that sort of oversensitivity means that they're more likely to lash out at anybody who allegedly criticizes the group. And that can mean that they might be more prejudiced towards members of other groups that they see as threatening or as undermining them or ignoring. So essentially, adults high in collective narcissism about different groups would be more likely to be show hostility towards members of other groups. So we've seen that in different contexts, as I said, we've seen that in the national context. So collective narcissism is associated with prejudice, especially towards groups that are seen as having a sort of difficult history with the group. So maybe they have been like historical enemies, but also sometimes even members of technically neutral groups that are just seen as maybe doing something that is Ambiguous, and that's enough to trigger the sort of rage and anger of those high in collective narcissism. And we also find that collective narcissism predicts general support for violent, disruptive forms of dealing with threats. There's research showing that they support extreme movements and organizations. They're more likely to support the use of violence and aggression in response to conflicts rather than maybe trying to invest efforts in more democratic or, or normative mediation you know, and <laughs> yeah, like rather than trying to focus on a,
1: a more constructive approach. And so you mentioned this role of anger that comes up when collective well narcissists, collective or otherwise uh, offended or they think there might be something going that doesn't recognize them. Is that sort of the primary thing, the primary emotion we would associate with a narcissist backlash? There has been theorizing about
0: this, that narcissism is regulated by anger and rage, but also there has been some theoretical work suggesting a of shame and shame
1: avoidance in here. Okay, so we talked a little bit then about this emotional association with narcissism, And it reminds me of one of your paper titles because I was looking through the list of your publications and I saw that there was one there called Does Self-Love or Self-Hate Predict Conspiracy Beliefs? And I'm assuming that this self-love idea implies narcissism. So well, firstly, is it self-love or self-hate? And what is the connection with conspiracy beliefs?
0: So the reason for this title was that a lot of Previous theorizing in the literature has linked conspiracy beliefs with low self-esteem, so people feeling bad about themselves. People were arguing that conspiracy theories might help people place blame for any misfortunes in their life or any negative self-feelings onto others, maybe some malevolent forces that are trying to undermine them, and this is why they're not feeling great about themselves. However, if you looked at the literature, the evidence has been really inconclusive. So some studies were saying that it's people who have a positive self-evaluation or that are more likely to be from conspiracy theories, others that it's low self-esteem. And we basically try to argue is that to fully understand this, you have to differentiate between narcissism and what we would call secure self-esteem. So this sort of self-conflict doesn't need external validation that basically a well-grounded sense of self-worth. So that would be a secure self-esteem. And narcissism, I said, as I said, is a bit of a sort of exaggerated self-love or exaggerated self-image that needs validation from others to be maintained, that people seek kind of uh, confirmation for in the outside. And our argument was that these two types of self-worth or self-evaluation would have very different relationships with in conspiracy theories. So if someone is high uh, in secure self-esteem, so if someone is really self-confident in this sort of grounded way, they might not need to find explanations uh, or look for uh, sort of explanations for going wrong with their lives because they feel that they're positive about themselves and they feel they can face life challenges. They don't necessarily look someone to blame for if they ac- encounter any sort of obstacles on their in their life. However, if someone is like really defensive, like narcissists, they're only always on the lookout for sort of signs of threat and maybe trying someone trying to undermine them, maybe working somewhere from the back seat and trying to prevent them from getting what they want. So, yeah. we argued that narcissism might be associated with stronger belief in conspiracy theories, also because narcissists tend to be more paranoid in general about other people. And we think that might spill over to also being more paranoid about politics and the society and different groups working in the society. And this is exactly what we found. Now, there's the flip side of this, that once you take into account these elements of narcissism, Mm -hmm. you do find that link that the lower secure self-esteem predicts belief in conspiracy theories as well, right? Because those are the people who feel Mm -hmm. really poorly about themselves in general. But the tricky thing about this is that narcissism and self-esteem tend to be correlated. So on average, move our higher in narcissism might also show higher self-esteem. So these things are sometimes difficult to tease apart without using psychological measurements and the specific statistical analysis. So by using specific statistical techniques, we try to get at these sort of more narcissistic and more secure aspects of self-esteem. But in real life, to some degree, these things can be conflated, and one thing can look like another when you interact with other people.
1: That's really curious, actually. And firstly, I want to know what kind of conspiracy beliefs we're talking about. Are we talking right. about like UFOs? Are we talking about lizard men ruling the world? Do they all interact with narcissists in the same way? So far, we haven't. We have found that their relationship is pretty
0: systematic. We, in the, our original project, when we looked at it, It was indeed belief in all sorts of conspiracy theories being like 9-11, Princess Diana, or more general political conspiracies with people I believe that there are some sort of secret agents within the government trying to get at people, eliminate political opponents, etc. But also, yeah, the more wacky conspiracy theories, if you will. But others have also looked at it in different contexts and have been finding pretty consistent evidence that this association exists seems to be a pretty robust link. Both us and other researchers who looked at it in the context of the COVID-19. Pandemic. We also find that conspiracy theories about coronavirus were associated with higher narcissism and collective narcissism. So both of them independently seem to be linked with these uh, <laughs> with like people to hang out with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with conspiracy theories, and there's various reasons for this. So one one of them I said is paranoia, but. Another one is when it comes to individual narcissism is potentially this idea that you have access to really privileged knowledge as well. So people might think, Mm -hmm. you know, might look to learn about conspiracy theories just to feel that they know something other people don't know. So there's work by others, including Roland Imhoff and Tian Amberti, but also Karen Douglas, um, Anthony Lantian, have found that need for uniqueness Mm -hmm. is associated with belief in conspiracy theories. And the need for uniqueness and feeling special is a characteristic of narcissism. So that's also one reason why they might feel the need to explore conspiracy theories, trying to feel that they are special privileged. Yeah, that's another kind of route to by which conspiracy theories may appeal to those high in narcissism.
1: How curious. And so earlier as well, you mentioned that normally people who are narcissistic have quite high self-esteem. But you also mentioned this might not be the case because there was the very narcissistic people who were more prone to conspiracy beliefs and also people with low self-esteem who were more prone to conspiracy Mm -hmm. beliefs. Is it that we're all prone to conspiracy beliefs? What happened to the middle ground here? Yeah. And how is it that sort of self-esteem and narcissism yeah. can be separated if we are able to separate them? So that was like a ten-part question. Narcissism
0: and self-esteem are distinct. So mm-hmm. what I try to get at earlier is that the narcissism and self-esteem sometimes can, on the surface, look similar. So for someone who might be self-confident, but on, on the surface, but unless you see more about whether how their self-confidence manifests. So for example, do they become enraged in criticism, and versus not. But the first impression might not give you enough information to know whether their positive self-evaluation is defensive or so narcissistic or more secure. Self-esteem and narcissism are very distinct phenomena or very distinct sort of traits. And there is more and more research from others, but also some work that we have done that shows that actually can have different origins. They come from different developmental trajectories. And as I said, people who are high in narcissism versus high in self-esteem, this, the secure self-esteem would act very differently in response, for instance, to criticism and threat, etc. We also, there's also been this sort of idea that very excessively high self-esteem might simply be narcissism. But there is more and more evidence that this is not the case. For example, we tracked Changes in narcissism, different aspects of our components of narcissism and self esteem across um, several months, and we found that their trajectories essentially were slightly different. So the different components of narcissism were reinforcing each other over time within the same person, but the they were not changes in self esteem were not leading to higher or lower narcissism. Over time, it's not that having higher and higher self-esteem would make someone a narcissist eventually, right? These things are there are different sets of beliefs about oneself. Narcissists believe they are better than others, and if someone doesn't see it, they simply don't want to see it, or they're basically wish them do not wish them well. But while well, those with high self-esteem see themselves really better on usually equal plane with others, they can recognize what sort of strengths and weaknesses they have when interacting with others, so they don't get as upset if someone. Might criticize them or not acknowledge it. So they are essentially two distinct traits or ways we construe our beliefs uh-huh. about ourselves. Now, so yeah, and what we have been finding is that it is narcissism that makes people particularly predisposed or at least we think predisposed to conspiracy beliefs. These are usually cross-sectional studies, so we don't really have often causal evidence for narcissism to cause looking to conspiracy theories. Also, it's because it's very hard to experimentally manipulate someone into being more narcissistic. Yeah. <laughs> that a relatively stable personality predisposition that can fluctuate like most traits, but still it's... So it's mostly from correlational evidence, but we it seems that it, high narcissism makes conspiracy theories appealing. Now... The effects for self-esteem are much smaller. So the the degree to which low self-esteem predisposes people to is, if anything, is much weaker. It is that defensiveness. And we find that in other of so research on conspiracy beliefs that being defensive, looking to maintain a positive image of yourself and the groups that you belong to associated with conspiracy beliefs. So it was a bit of a long-winded explanation, but I hope that's... <laughs> so, the, you know, sometimes there's an issue also relative to some of the effects we're dealing with. And we are now together with colleagues here at Ken, Karen Douglas, Robbie Sutton, Ricky Green, and Mikey Zon, who's now at Cambridge and is leading this project. We're working on a meta-analysis of all sorts of different needs and motives associated with belief in conspiracy theories. So stay tuned for the final version of that.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. No, it sounds like it would be very interesting. And so now that you've clarified this relationship or lack of relationship moreover between self-esteem and narcissism, as far as they're not necessarily entangled, it's clear that if we come across someone who is narcissistic, whether individually, collectively, it sounds like they're very much related, we can't just attack them. And think that will reduce their narcissism, because you also mentioned that nast is a quite a stable trait. In that case, I understand from what you said that collective narcissism can be quite toxic. So what should we actually do? That's the million-dollar question that we're trying to answer as well. When
0: it comes to collective narcissism, we have some evidence that it can develop as a sort of response to frustrated personal needs as well. For example, there's some work showing that people with low feeling of control over their lives or a low self-worth are more likely to develop collective narcissism towards their nation, for instance. From that, we could reason that, you know, making people feel more in control and boosting their self worth in a sort of healthy, secure way, not in a sort of overconfidence yeah. kind of way. Like. <laughs> you're the greatest to keep going. Yeah, it might buffer some of these effects. So it might make people a mm-hmm. little bit less likely to be defensive about the different groups they belong to. But this work, again, is in quite a, in infancy. So we have found some evidence for this. So, we have found some experimental evidence that boosting one's feelings of personal control would lead to, would decrease collective narcissism, at least declaratively and temporarily. But we don't know to what degree this lasts, and we don't still don't know how robust this effect is, because like, this is preliminary evidence, but this is the direction that some of this work is might be going to. So basically trying to focus on satisfying people's personal needs and making sure they feel secure in their environments, and that should reduce defensiveness in general. And likewise, there are similar arguments about conspiracy beliefs. The model that we work with when it comes to understanding conspiracy theories with Karen Douglas, Robiset, and others, is basically trying to see conspiracy theories as a way to manage different individual needs. And one thing to stress here is that they're not usually an effective way to manage individual needs, but people think they might be, right? So they promise an enemy you could blame for your problems, or they, they promise maybe some degree of certainty. If you can explain an event that is really unexplainable by pointing to who was responsible, right? So that might give you a little bit of a false sense of certainty. And it's false because conspiracy theories tend to reinforce feelings of threat, and then someone is out to get you, and that uh, you shouldn't feel confident because there's secret forces operating in the shadows that might try to undermine you. But on the surface, they are there might be a way for people trying to manage their frustrated personal needs. And then Maybe one way of trying to address belief in conspiracy theories could be trying to address these basic needs. But the problem is that a lot of reasons why people feel uncertain, disengaged, alienated from the society is some of the societal issues we are facing. We've just had a, we're still have, are in the middle of the pandemic, this pandemic is probably not as acutely present in people's lives that it was just a few months ago but still a massive problem for many people who still need to be really careful about their health and well-being still probably increasing worries, anxiety, uncertainty oh, yeah. big financial crisis right now people in the UK worried about paying their energy bills, energy bills, etc. So a lot of reasons why people feel anxious, uncertain, insecure, have a lot to do with the society and Mm -hmm. societal processes. So I think there's only so much we can do as individual psychologists here. And of course, we're trying to understand and test certain interventions, but trying to, for instance, find little nudges or, or even, I don't know, training sessions or whatever that would make people suddenly less defensive might be hard if they live in a society that constantly... Throws this curveballs at them.
1: I think that's very relatable. And I had to laugh a little when you said they were alienated because, of course, I immediately started thinking about alien based. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but not that kind of alienation. Not that kind. all right no notion. And so that you all hear as aliens are here. So that's what okay. we've heard on this podcast. But very, I think it's very easy to empathize with somebody who, you know is there and they're unable to meet their basic needs. You've just mentioned heating and this energy crisis. And obviously we've seen inflation in so many countries, maybe all countries, I don't know about that, around the world. And there's that real insecurity. And if you can't do anything because you cannot get paid more, you do not have more hours the day to work, then yeah, you can understand why people say it's because of this person doing this to me or these people doing it to me. And yeah, it does give you that maybe almost the fight as a way to move forward because you have that will to live because you're in this noble fight against these very nasty people doing things to you. So it's hard not to empathize with that. And I guess it's also a little bit hard to not feel as individuals perhaps disempowered to help because, of course, the instinct is to go, how can we help these people? But it has to be systemic, right?
0: Yeah, and I think it – but you also touched on something that is important to stress and which we try to – really emphasizing the study of conspiracy theories that usually in our work, we try to really not make judgments about whether certain conspiracy theories are true. Some of them are more probable than others. And some of them we <laughs> are able to evaluate scientists. Right? But yeah. the, if someone believes about um, a some sort of collision in politics, it sometimes can be true. true. And for the 9-11 sometimes is the best example. 9-11 was a conspiracy Mm -hmm. I think people just Mm -hmm. differ with respect was like who's behind the conspiracy and in that sense I think that's a sort of tricky line doing the kind of work that we do between on the one hand trying to be advocates for truth and fighting misinformation, etc. And also trying to sympathize with why people believe certain things. And while both obviously not judging these beliefs, but also sometimes we really do not have the resources because we're not investigative journalists to figure yeah. out what actually has happened in, in center situations. What we're trying to is under is understand why are people attracted to these explanations for what's happening in the world? Why would certain people be more likely to read about conspiracy theories or other forms of misinformation versus not, right? Trying to basically, and that's what political psychology is all about, trying to understand the why, what that's, what psychological mechanisms, what societal mechanisms come into play that make people attracted to these, to look out for these explanations.
1: Fantastic. And I think there's one question I should have definitely asked already. And that is, thinking of collective narcissists, how frequent actually is that? What amount of the population would you say is prone to collective narcissism? And is it all of us?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to know, answer this question precisely. This is the percentage of people, mostly because... We measure collective narcissism on the continuum. So it's not that it's like a zero-one thing. And likewise with narcissism, yes, you can have a narcissistic personality disorder. That would be classified by a clinical psychologist, but it's not a zero-zero-one thing. Just like people can be a little bit more versus less narcissistic, people really can be a little bit more versus less collectively narcissistic about their groups. And then, as I said, we don't really know yet if someone might be not narcissistic about their country but maybe they're super nurses think about their football team that they support yes. and uh, so basically what what we are finding is that it is pretty pretty equally distributed evenly distributed in the population mm-hmm. it's a normal distribution in most places we looked at when we looked at representative samples some people within the, any kind of country would score low on this some would fall. most would score somewhere in the middle some would score very high but it's not to say that they are not there are no between-country differences, for example. So hmm. recently, we've done this exciting project in which we were able to measure collective narcissism across over 50 countries. And this was part hmm. of this international collaboration of social and moral psychology that we started last year in March to try to understand psychology behind COVID-19. This was inspired by Java Van who got a few of us together to try to collect data across the world. It was a, a, an insane project, that I don't even know how we pulled it off. But we got there and we published some work on identity and COVID-19. But we also, because we collected data on collective narcissism across different countries, we were able to see if there are variations between countries. And we tried to make some guesses for where they might come from. We don't believe... That people are naturally predisposed to be or culturally predisposed to be narcissistic about their group. But as I said, it's a function of people's sort of experiences, right? It can be a function of individual experiences, but also of how the group is treated, how their nation is treated in their international arena, right? Because people, countries do not operate in a vacuum. There is a lot of dependencies, different systems of trade and alliances and agreements and conflicts, Mm -hmm. right? So... We reasoned that the way people are, or the nation is treated, or the way at least that people perceive it to be treated might mean that on average, citizens of this country might be more likely to show higher levels of collective narcissism versus lower. So one factor that we looked at there was level of globalization. So how globalized countries, and that's because there's also some evidence The feelings that your group is being excluded and ignored in international relations can lead to higher collective narcissism. So we said, okay, what would be a proxy of a country being like super included and integrated versus excluded from different processes? And we thought globalization is the degree to which countries globalize would capture this. And we found pretty robust evidence for this. So the more globalized the country, the lower levels of collective narcissism among the citizens. The less globalized the country, the higher collective narcissism on average. But that also points us to maybe a potential, and that kind of speaks to your earlier questions, maybe one potential mm-hmm. is greater integration, right? And greater collaboration between countries. And if people feel that they're being listened to in another country, has to say that could maybe affect levels of collective narcissism. But again, this is still cross-sectional data. We're excited that we got all these 56 countries' measures of collective narcissism. Most of the samples were representative, not all, but the effects hold even if we just look like representative data. But it also could be that the higher on average collective narcissism within the country, the less globalized they become because Mm. their collective narcissism is also associated with willingness to leave supranational organizations such as the EU. So in the UK, for example, higher collective narcissism was related with support for Brexit. We found similar effects Mm -hmm. in Poland, support for potential poll exit, as they call it. So that's not something that is on the the ballot yet, but people have been making such suggestions and high collective narcissism predicts greater support for such solutions. Um, So it could be that also the paradoxical thing is that the more collective narcissism in the country or maybe among leadership, et cetera, the more likely we are to also isolate ourselves, which might mean that mm-hmm. some collectiveness might be frustrated further, et cetera. And so these are some potential, potential implications of these findings, but there's still more work to be done. To always more, be done. more work to be done. Always more, done. more work to be, always why, to be done. That's why it's great to be an academic. There's always, dec- <laughs> the world that does not fail to inspire us to do more and more.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, let's see. And you just made me think as well of wasn't there a certain former US president who said we might leave the UN or they might leave the UN because yeah. that certain country was so great? Yeah, <laughs> very subtle is. of me, very subtle. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's also something that inspired us to think about these links. And there is evidence that higher U.S. collective narcissism was linked to support for the president versus his opponents. But of course, yeah, and a lot of his rhetoric has these markers of collective narcissism, right? We are a, an exceptional country. You know, our enemies just don't appreciate how great we are. We need to show everybody who we yeah. are dealing with. But of course, hard to say to what degree he himself would endorse this narratives. But the, from what he his rhetoric that certainly suggests that this is that kind of version of of national identity.
1: And so I guess one thing people will be wondering is at the national level, the difference then between collective narcissism and patriotism, because often people can can view patriotism as a very good thing. So do they differ and in what way?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And in some way, it's useful to think about the difference between secure self-esteem In individual narcissism, right? So just as people can be secure about themselves, they can also have very secure, confident attachment to their group and feel strong ties with other people in their nation, feel really positive about their culture and their history. But that doesn't necessarily imply that they think they're better than others or that they think they're unique and they deserve special treatment. There's there can be this positive, secure group identity that has a lot of benefits in both in terms of how we treat others, members of other groups, other countries, but also how we treat members of our own society. So the real, probably shocking and sad paradox of collective narcissism is that it shows disregard for members of other groups and other nations, but those who are in collective narcissism actually also do not really care that much about their compatriots. They care more about the image of the nation and how the nation is seen in the international arena, whether it's portrayed as strong as important, but not so much about the well-being of others within the society. While patriotism is associated with not only caring, for you, your nation and the symbols of the flags, but also caring for others, making sure that you're supporting your fellow citizens with political engagement, wanting to work for the country to make it better often. So an interesting example of how collective narcissism can almost backfire on people comes from some of the research on that we've done in the context of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So Björki Gronfeld who's just feeling his PhD here at Kent, and colleagues did some studies when he basically tried to gauge people's support for certain policies that have been suggested Mm -hmm. during the pandemic that might actually be beneficial for sticking it to others, but not beneficial for people within the country. So one example Mm -hmm. is the infamous ventilator scheme that the UK opted out of during the pandemic. So at the very beginning, there was this sort of opportunity for buying ventilators within the EU and this was the sort of transition period for the UK so UK could have joined the EU in purchasing this equipment and basically get a better deal for people in the UK then they decided to opt out of this and see people seem to have supported this at least those who were high in collective narcissism because they felt no we can show them that we can do it alone and better even though they objectively they were losing out on this decision another example comes from the US where um, President Trump at some point suggested that US should report should test less so to report less cases so that it would make the country look better in international comparisons. And we found that those higher in collective narcissism said that yeah we should do this even though we explicitly told them that testing was really important that can save lives. And they were so even though it would say it could explicitly harm people in the country, they would still more likely to support this. And that was regardless of their support for Trump in the first place, right? So we controlled for this and still higher collective narcissism predicted predict and saying, yeah, okay, let's reduce testing would make us look better. And that was statistically mediated by this idea that we need to get, we need recognition. We need to look strong in the international arena. And we have examples of this also from other context, organizations, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, that those who high collective narcissism really treat the group as something that serves their ego, right? So they want to feel good about themselves. So they invest, they think we need to make our country look great and Mm -hmm. at whatever cost, right? So even if we treat our other people within the country as disposable, as someone you can just use for your own service, right? So that's the thing. That's one of the saddest aspects of collective narcissism that we find it and really pack fire on your own country. And I think to some degree that's some maybe something that leaders we suspect do not always recognize. They think that just boosting this sort of ideal us whatever it takes for us just shape this view that we are special, we are exceptional, we are extraordinary, that might in some way also lead to greater cohesion within the nation, but that's not the case. It might lead to the need to defend the image and the reputation of the nation, but it can backfire because people do not care for each other. They care for what it looks
1: like to the other. As you're saying that, the image that comes to my mind is actually Russia right now, yeah. where there's obviously been a lot of discourses over many years about sort of Russian exceptionalism and strength, this idea of this Russian bear. And yet now with the mobilization... Yeah. And crucially that the West is not giving them the recognition thats that they're constantly trying to undermine them. Exactly, Russia especially. Yeah as its own special type of sovereignty, deserves recognition, and now yeah, you have this effect of mobilization and individual Russian people being treated as disposable
0: yeah, yeah.
1: in like very egotistical-looking kind of way. Exactly, and it's yeah. just it's horrific. So I can, you can I think that maybe paints the picture of how collective narcissism can actually hurt yeah. inside of a country.
0: Yeah, and also you see a lot of Russians and trying to flee. There's at least reports right now being worried they're going to be sent to, and both because they might be worried they're going to send to a war they do not support. Of course, not everybody mm-hmm. in Russia supports. Of course, yeah. But also we have some evidence showing that those who are high in collective narcissism do not show loyalty to their group. If they can get a bit mm. better deal elsewhere, they're going to go. Wow, it yeah. Really, yeah, because it's not really a best, not <laughs> about that particular Group they might if they can find prestige almost prestige uh, elsewhere yeah, yeah find prestige elsewhere there that's what they're gonna right. go after so for instance uh, this is again just a sort of indirect evidence but that same uh, researcher who does this COVID studies has found that in study of politicians in Iceland those who were collectively narcissistic about their political party were the ones who have changed the parties the most uh, <laughs> in the past. So, wow. so that kind of is indirect evidence that that we have that that chasing prestige. So it may as well be that some of the that some people within Russia that obviously would play out similarly yeah. in other countries might have been supporting Putin's agenda until mm. it came
1: for them, and they were the ones yeah. where it might have been sent to the front, and they were like, oh no, never mind. Yeah. There's that meme about you joined the face the leopards eating face party, and then you never thought that the leopard would eat your own face. There's that there's a whole meme about it, right? Oh yeah. Never thought this would happen to me, but now it's been turned back on me. I'm going to yeah. suffer. I'm out.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yes, I think Russia
0: is a really great example of this rhetoric
1: from Putin's
0: right now. And yeah, it's a lot of those marks of collective narcissism. Yeah. And uh, we can really see very well there how certain things can be framed as insults and threats, even mm-hmm. maybe we, from our perspective, wouldn't see them as threatening from the perspective of NATO and Russia's neighboring countries, etc. cetera
1: absolutely okay so look we've talked about collective narcissism individual narcissism we've talked about conspiracies and how this is all terrible for everyone nobody wants to be a collective narcissist really but I, if you had to give one piece of advice and of course more research needed but to people who were trying to work on types of social conflicts i mean is there something you could tell them about how to deal with or to help or to redirect collective narcissists so that we could accomplish something more collaborative and coherent as a society?
0: This is a difficult question, of course, because (laughs) it's very hard to give advice if you don't have direct evidence for this advice working, if you are Mm -hmm. workers in academia. But I think there, there would be two things I would pay attention to. One of them is trying to figure out when... Some identities may not actually be about the group, but about the individual. So look into the individual motives that people have for endorsing sentient beliefs, certain versions of their identity. So basically trying to look at the psychological motivations behind different beliefs. And be it collective narcissism, belief in conspiracy theories. So trying to understand why, what kind of functions, what it serves for the individual, right? What does it give them or promise them at least? Because as I said, some of these things might backfire. the person but the second thing and i guess that's the hardest one is looking at structural factors which i mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier right because um a lot of this really points to the or boils down to the fact that people cannot have their basic needs met met sometimes in the Mm -hmm. modern societies which means that they are psychologically more vulnerable to uh, latch onto these beliefs that can be really Detrimental not only for the society more broadly, but also for them in the long term. And often we, there is this sort of way in which people deal with frustrated needs, or deal with the people develop coping styles that are actually backfiring later on, right? Then that can kind of have this knock-on effect and be almost like a vicious circle, right? So, say someone who tries to cling onto a conspiracy theory to make to feel more secure, but they end up feeling more secure and more alienated from politics even further. Right. So looking at structural factors that can affect the individual, I think that's what I would focus on. But how to actually tackle them, I think it's really difficult. And we're still trying to figure that out, working on different interventions and real-life applications. So basically, watch this space. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. And not only, and of course, a lot of other people doing this work
1: as well. So I'm excited to see what comes out of other labs too. Fantastic. Look, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been so interesting and so engaging. I really appreciate your time. And so for those interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? The University of Kent website. All our publications
0: are there. Most of them are available to download. And you can also follow me and our lab on Twitter we post usually new developments from our team and uh, other people we collaborate with. So it's usually a lot of exciting work coming from political psychology at Kent, and we have a master's program in political psychology
1: for those who want to kind of <laughs> dig in yeah. further. There you go, <laughs> recruiting students for you. Yes, super. And what's the Twitter handle? Yeah, so it's at
0: Alex Chihotsky's is my Twitter and Paul Syk at Kent. Paul mm-hmm. Kent is the map
1: Twitter. Fantastic. We'll make sure to include those in the podcast description as well. Okay, great. Thank great. you. So thanks again. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.